Hello and welcome to the Phenomena podcast. I'm Elliot Salandi-Brown, a partner at Red Associates, and today we're going to be exploring the topic of mental health. In particular, how the latest social science suggests we should move past our current biological and individual framing of the issue to a more social and cultural perspective. We'll also be exploring the opportunities that this evolution in our thinking could create for businesses and organisations. And to dive into this topic, I'm joined by Anna Mena Lodhup, a partner at Red Associates who spent a decade in leadership positions in the pharmaceutical industry before joining our Copenhagen office. Anna Mena, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. You're welcome, Elliot. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Anamena, your consulting work in healthcare has taken you into a load of different topics, diabetes, HIV, wound care, vaccines. Why is it that mental health is such a particular topic of focus for you at the moment? Well, while I do most of my work within healthcare, I also do work in other areas. And in the past couple of years, I've simply just seen mental health bubble up everywhere, not just in pharma, but also in our tech projects, where we've seen a sense of belonging declining, in food projects, where we've seen people actively looking for supplements to aid their mental health, in grocery shopping projects, where health is being intertwined with anxiety and a growing concern for the environment, or in sports projects, where running really is as much for mental health as for physical activity. And oddly enough, I've also seen it in our luxury projects, where dreams and aspirations are intertwined with buying really expensive things as a short-term remedy to alleviate stress. So it seems to be everywhere. So for some reason, I think that because our work is based on observations and open interactions with respondents, we kind of let them put in focus what's important to them. And because of that, we're also well-suited to spot when things change, when what matters to people is changing, both at an individual, a cultural, and a societal level. And mental health is just clearly one of those areas. How we think about it, how we act on it, and where we look for solutions is changing. And I've been, for a while been quite curious about why that is, and also how the pharma industry, the, the healthcare system, and, and certainly also how private sector can find new opportunities to play a valuable role when it comes to prevention and diagnosis and treatment of mental health. So that's why I'm interested in it. It seems to be everywhere. We're all tuned into the mental health situation in one way or another, but could you clarify, Anameda, what do you think the stakes are? Why might it deserve even more attention than it may already be getting? It's a good question. I, I think the answer to that question is that mental health is, if not the most prominent, then one of the most prominent needs of the coming generation. If you look at sort of the numbers, if you look at the news, they're full of shocking numbers. Anxiety, depression, self-harm, eating disorders are going up, and in particularly so in the younger generation. WHO is warning against a massive 25% increase in global prevalence of anxiety and depression, in particularly triggered by the COVID pandemic. And prescription medications for mental health is increasing. In the past 20 years, consumptions of antidepressant medication more than doubled in OECD countries. And if you look at the healthcare systems, I mean, if you look at it in Denmark, but also in the US in particular, they're stretched beyond their limits. Here in Denmark, if, if you have a teenager that's struggling with mental health, there's more than a year's waiting time to see a psychiatrist. So this is one, arguably one of the biggest health concerns of our time. Could you add some texture to why businesses should care, Anna Meta? 
the way I see it is that there is a, a wide opportunity space where I think more and also new players should be invited in to identify new types of solutions. As I said, the healthcare system cannot solve it on its own, or at least that needs massive investments if it should. And pharmaceutical companies cannot solve it alone either. So there seems to be this widening focus, this widening area, where new solutions that address not just the heavier end of the spectrum of, of mental health disorders, but perhaps also at the lower end of the spectrum, closer to the, to the normal or the mild disorders. Um, so if you look at the full spectrum, I think there is a, a room for private players to also play a, a role that they haven't done so far. So you mentioned that mental health keeps bubbling up in the data from a wide range of projects that you've been involved in, statistical yes. data, cultural data, qualitative data. So what is all that information telling you about what's new and what's changing um, in this space, Anameda? So it's telling me at least that mental health is sort of changing in nature in how we talk about it, how we share it with others, how willing we are to act on it. And it's also showing that there is a the status quo, the way our systems are, does not address that unmet need. So for sure, there, there seems to be this growing monster, and it's really difficult to figure out how do we attack it with our current solutions at hand. And I think to be able to act on it, we need to look at mental health from a different perspective than what we've been doing up until now. And I think there are in particular things that are critical in order to move towards new solutions for prevention and diagnosis and treatment. And the first one, perhaps the most critical one, is that we need to widen our lens on what is impacting mental health from primarily just looking at biology to also looking at it from a social and cultural perspective. There is, of course, very strong evidence that mental health has a biological cause. Something is going on in our brain. But there's also plenty of evidence describing how mental health is affected by our, our environment. Our social context can both cause mental health, health issues and it can amplify existing problems. So social and cultural factors such as loneliness, pressure from social media, parenting styles can, of course, have a significant impact on mental health. And more and more is pointing to the fact that it is that interplay between social stimuli and the clinical reactions in the brain that's causing anxiety, depression, mood disorders, cognitive disorders, and so forth. And this is not new, but it's not addressed sufficiently in how we treat mental health today. We still primarily treat it with medication or counseling that's focused on the individual, not the social context the individual is in. Um, for instance, if you look at the Danish debate about how to improve the healthcare system to better address the mental health challenges we're facing, there's a lot of talk about the number of beds in psychiatric institutions and how many nights you can keep a patient, and surprisingly little talk about how to ensure a better link between being an inpatient and an outpatient, so including that social context in the treatment itself. And if I should give you an example from a study we've conducted on, on depression, an example of how that social context is often not an integral part of treatment, we went out and met a priest who had been diagnosed with depression and who had been given a prescription. And she had started her treatment, but she described how a turning point for the worse for her was standing in the church and blanking completely when she was supposed to give the sermon. 
Now, cognitive symptoms are common when you have a depression, and even with treatment, it can take time before it gets better. But the way the local community looked at this priest afterwards was devastating to her and made her spiral into an even worse state, a vicious cycle, um, instead of the improvement you might have expected with the prescription. So medication in and of itself was not enough for her. It would have been critical for her to also address how her cognitive symptoms could affect her in a social context. And what does widening the lens on mental health mean for players in the mental health space? So widening the lens on on mental health opens up opportunities for various players. You could imagine how a pharma company could improve efficacy by also creating patient support programs that include social and cultural elements, or how efforts in the public health care system could be improved by considering a much stronger link between in and out patients. So if part of mental health issues is caused by the social context, then part of the solution also needs to be found here. And this requires rethinking the way we treat mental health today and raise important questions about how. And that's an area where the social sciences can be a useful tool. As a social scientist, it seems quite intuitive to me that people's social context and cultural context would play a big role in their mental health. So why is it that that has been underappreciated in the health space until now? Why is it that pharmaceutical companies and our healthcare systems perhaps don't take that into account as much as we would expect? That's a great question, Elliot, and I'm not sure I can answer it. But my take would be, if you look at the literature at least, then there's always been a debate about how much is caused by biology and genetics and how much is actually caused by the environment. So that debate has been going on for decades. But I will say that there is something about the race that we've had in the the past decades or so to try and map the brain, figure out what exactly is at play, what is interacting what in the brain, and come up with a, a chemical answer to the problem. That, with a combination of a very solid stigma, means that we perhaps haven't talked so much about what can we do about our social context, how open can we be in verbalizing it ourselves and identifying solutions to address it. And within at least a treatment sphere, the way the social context has been dealt with is in one-on-one conversations with a psychologist. And that isn't truly embracing someone's social context. That's looking at it from one perspective in a room with a psychologist rather than actually mapping out what exactly is going on in your social context. So I think it's a combination of this race to map what's going on in the brain and at the same time a very solid stigma in place preventing us from talking openly about it. So it sounds like there's this focus on biology in the individual when we increasingly understand that it's social and cultural and that rethinking and reframing mental health in that way presents new opportunities to prevent, diagnose and and treat these increasingly problematic conditions. I'm wondering, what are the implications and opportunities for businesses if we reframe it in that way more specifically? Yes, so you could say breaking that upwards curve of mental health issues with medication alone is, is certainly questionable. 
if part of that problem is caused by the social context, then part of the solution should definitely also be found here. And so that requires innovation, it requires rethinking on how we treat mental health problems, and it does raise important questions that we need to find answers to. And also, how do we then apply a rigorous methodology that could, for instance, be social sciences to figure out that social context part that hasn't really fully been addressed? So let's now move on to the opportunities for the healthcare space and pharmaceutical companies and perhaps all sorts of other sectors to play a valuable role in this space into the categories of prevention, diagnosis and treatment as three potential domains where they could get involved and add value. So let's start with prevention. What are the opportunities there if we reframe mental health as social and cultural? That's a great question. If we, for instance, want to foster a more resilient young generation, we definitely need to double down on prevention. Um, We need to rethink what roles various industries or institutions can play here, not just pharma and the healthcare system, but also players within the food, sports and gaming industry. Should the food industry, for instance, double down on supplements and food that connects the gut and brain? Could the sports industry build social communities with a focus on mental health, not just physical health? And how could that gaming industry better address prevention by, for instance, preparing young people for difficult situations? So if you explore these questions and you use the toolbox of social sciences, that can help you identify new opportunities to make a difference and and add value to people's lives in a way that hasn't been done before. And so sectors like the food industry, sport, gaming... Obviously, at the moment, they're quite a long way from these issues. Do you have any guidance on how they can begin to play in this space in a way that really adds value, but also seems credible to people in a way that doesn't seem too much of a stretch for their their brands or their capabilities? Absolutely. So I think we are seeing beginning of solutions bubbling up in these different industries. And I think there's something about ensuring that you, first of all, you speak the language of of the generation that you're addressing, but also that you have a deep understanding of the types of social context that your product will be used in. What kind of role will it play in a lived experience of a, a young person, say, living with anxiety? So you need to sort of ground it in a thorough understanding of the lived experience that your product will fit into. Great. Let's move on to talk about diagnoses. So when it comes to diagnosis, you could imagine how pharma could help spearhead the development of more precise digital tools to get diagnosis right. Not so long ago, we helped a client explore this area within a very serious mental health condition. And the issue was that patients were being diagnosed based on these standard questionnaires where you have to answer questions about their activities of daily living. But these patients very often had cognitive impairment, and answering questions about things you did last week could be quite difficult. So on top of that, physicians would also try and assess their ability to be structured. And here they would ask their patients to come in to an early appointment in the morning, with the underlying assumption being that if they could get up early, get dressed, and make their way to the consultation in time, then they would also be able to keep up structure in their daily living. However, in our study, we found out that many patients had turned around their daily schedules completely because of their symptoms at night. 
So sleeping in in the morning and perhaps getting up at 1 p.m. instead meant that they were actually able to do things and even work in the afternoon. And this is a patient population that is finding it very hard to actually be able to work. So thus, their ability to structure their daily lives had absolutely nothing to do with getting up early in the morning. So here, the standard care, the standard way of diagnosing actually was full of errors. So that in-depth study of the lived experience of the disease revealed how a digital tool could actually help assess how they were, in fact, doing much closer to reality, and at the same time also help patients better understand how they could function better in their social context. And I think this is an excellent example of how digital tools comboed with a, a deep understanding of people's social context and their lived experience of a particular condition can help get things much more precise in a, in a more user-friendly and also empowering way. This was looking at the severe end of the spectrum. If you look at the lower end of the mental health spectrum, you could also imagine what a self-assessment tool could do for young people and their parents. So while mental health is becoming less stigmatized, the education around what constitutes a mental health condition hasn't followed. So there is a great risk of self-diagnosis and changing your behavior for the worse on this account, and of course also the reverse. So initiatives that could heighten education and perhaps even self-assessment would be an important tool. And this is something actors such as uh, health insurance companies could look into as a supplement to their counseling offerings and, and medication. So those are some examples of how, how you could actually create solutions that are, are useful when it comes to diagnosis. I understand there is the opportunity to actually treat them better with an understanding of that social and cultural dimension. So what are the opportunities there? At least when it comes to treatment, I think that companies like insurance companies or, or private health care providers could help, in particular, parents map their kids' social context to the mental issues that they're struggling with and help them create a plan to move their kids in the right direction. So actually getting a thorough understanding of what is it in your kids' social context that may amplify or even drive the health issue that they're struggling with could be immensely helpful. So combined with a diagnosis tool, this can empower parents and kids to be proactive rather than reactively wait for treatment to be possible through the public healthcare system, where these waiting lists are currently excessively long. You could also imagine the role that digital games and AI could have. Imagine young people with social anxiety, and then imagine stimulating small steps in a virtual environment that feels more safe as a testing ground. You could frame an engaging low-stakes environment in a game for people to test out what this might feel like and thereby slowly build the coping mechanisms for their particular social context. That could be another treatment solution. There is also a plethora of potential actors that could explore new treatment options focused on, on social context. We talked about food supplements early on. It could also be coaching with an ecology lens or sports or video games or food supplements. But the key will be to find a way to verify these solutions so that you can separate credible solutions from, from snake oil solutions. And I firmly believe that the social science is a powerful tool that could be put at play here. So is there much evidence as you look across the companies um, and organizations in the mental health space and in other sectors that they are moving towards these opportunities that focus on the social and cultural elements of mental health? 
I think that there are signs of a movement happening. There are solutions that are bubbling up, but I still think that we're predominantly at a stage where it's more marketing and communication efforts than its actual solutions. And I also see very little steps taken in terms of actually using the social context lens and properly integrating it into solutions. It is still very much at a beginner state, and I think we will see a growth in the coming years. Um, but I do think that there is a huge opportunity to apply these sort of tools early on to get it right and to be able to actually make a difference and, and serve the needs of this huge issue of our time. You've talked a lot about younger generations so far. I'd be interested to know, what are your observations in the way attitudes towards mental health are changing amongst the older people that we studied? I mean, just to speak personally for a moment... Um, mm. I was lucky or unlucky enough, depending on how you see it, to go to a rather traditional kind of pretentious English <laughs> boys school where we really didn't have the option of talking about mental health. Mm. And I'm wondering, how are people of my generation who are now surrounded by messages about it and opportunities to speak about it, but perhaps who don't have the, the tools or the inclination or, or really the, the feeling of comfort to speak about yeah. these things, how are they reacting to these changes? Yeah. I think it's super interesting. I think for a very long time, there's been a clash between the younger and the older generations. But I do think COVID actually did us all a favor there. All of a sudden, we were all sitting alone at home. We were feeling what it feels like to not be part of our social fabric. And that led to a different openness. There was talk about uprooting your lives and quitting your jobs and doing things differently. Why are we in this rat race? And stress became sort of a very easily verbalized topic that easily slipped over into also be including anxiety and depression. And so I think there is a shift for the older generations too. We're certainly not there, but there has been a change in tone of voice and also the fact that some of our kids, teenage kids, are talking about it differently and are experiencing mental health issues. So that also affects us. And you can say, even if we were firmly holding on to our old stigma, we are grappling with a generation, and it's our kids we're talking about, who have issues and who we want to help, we want to do something for. And hence, that also leads to a willingness to look for new solutions and verbalize new sides of mental health that we might not have done before. So I think we're at the beginning of a curve that will change um, for mental health, both when it comes to how we talk about it, but certainly also the types of solutions that we're looking for. So I'm getting a feeling for a wide range of ways that uh, traditional actors in the mental health space and new actors in the mental health space can potentially have a role as we reframe it. I'm wondering... What's the role of social science in all of that going forward? What does a social scientist like you get excited about doing as we move in that direction? Yeah. I think as we try to unpack and understand that social component of mental health, the social and cultural part, I think social sciences can be the tool to help us understand better what we do well and what we do less well. It's that tool that you can apply to ensure that you have a systematic and rigorous way of um, grounding new solutions in the lived reality, in the social context of people living with mental health issues. Anna Meta, thanks so much for joining us on the Phenomena podcast. It was lovely to be part of it, Elliot. 
So, to dig into the topic of mental health further, I'm joined by Professor Emily Mendenhall. Emily's a medical anthropologist and a professor at the Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. She's also the author of the books Sendemic Suffering, Rethinking Diabetes, Global Mental Health and Unmasked. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today, Emily. It's great to be here. Thank you. So could you start by giving us an introduction to the work you do and just letting us know what your involvement is in the field of mental health? Sure. Um, I have been looking at the intersections of social trauma and mental health and physical illness for nearly two decades. My book, Rethinking Diabetes, is an analysis of research on social trauma and diabetes and how that becomes embedded in the body and also experienced psychologically, but also within social relations. And I've done research in Chicago, Delhi, Johannesburg, and Nairobi on this topic. And I'm also co-editor of a book called Global Mental Health Anthropological Perspectives. And I've done a lot of work on how people think and speak about mental illness. And I'm also editor-in-chief of Social Science and Medicine Mental Health. I think that psychological distress can be social and also defined by individuals differently than their clinicians think. So I think people come to experience and embody mental illness in individual and social ways that don't always match their diagnoses that clearly. And that biomedical interventions in the clinic, even therapy or pharmaceuticals, aren't the only solutions, and that often we really have to look beyond those solutions to promote well-being. Are there any studies or stories that you go back to that continue to confirm that that perspective on mental health is the way of seeing things? I think one of the best studies illustrating how culture so powerfully influences how people experience and embody mental health was done by Tanya Lerman and many other colleagues on this project called the Hearing Voices Project. And what they found is they looked at how people in India and in Ghana and the United States interact with voices. So they were looking at people with psychosis. And what they found is that depending on which, in which culture you live, the voices you hear that speak to you in moments of psychosis are culturally constructed. So they found that in people living in the United States, Americans are much more likely to have much more violent um, voices or have kind of more extreme voices telling you to act in certain ways compared to other contexts where voices um, that people would hear and interact with were much more caring and gentler. And so the ways in which you think about and even see um, a different experience due to mental illness is culturally constructed. So I think we've spoken a little bit about um, Tanya Lerman's other book called Our Most Troubling Madness and how some of the comparative case studies demonstrated that it's difficult to fill a role of someone identified living with mental illness in the United States in part because of how we care for people with mental illness. So some of these case studies really demonstrated how in contexts such as India, there's a social role within the family or the community where people can live out their experience and still be accepted by society, while in the U.S. it's more likely we over-medicate or institutionalize people with severe psychosis. So just the ways in which we think about disorder or a disruption or just a differently experienced psychological span can affect how people see you, how people treat you, and how you live with mental illness in society. Mm. And that view on mental health that you've just laid out, how close is that to the way 
the dominant healthcare systems and pharmaceutical companies approach this challenge and also understand the issues of mental health? Well, you know, we live in a society that wants to fix everything. And I think that pharmaceutical companies, which is their business model, is are trying to respond to needs through chemical intervention. And now some people with mental illness truly need psychopharmaceutical intervention to live healthy lives. But in some cases, it's not the only solution and maybe not even the best solution. Um, about 15 years ago, I met a woman in Chicago at the General Medicine Clinic at Cook County Hospital, and she was telling me her diabetes story. And it was an extraordinary story and one that I won't forget. And I often call her Beatrice when I speak of this story. She, when she was a young mother, had a son who was shot, caught, caught up in a conflict and was handicapped and lived in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. But much later, when about 15 years after that incident, her eldest son was actually shot in crossfire. And in her grief, her extraordinary grief, her family tried to care for her and, and thought she needed more concern, more care. They brought her to the hospital and her grief was misinterpreted as psychosis. And the hospital hospitalized her for inpatient care for a month. And during that time, they medicated her with um, antipsychotic medication. And over the course of a month, she gained 40 pounds. And she connects this hospitalization with her weight gain. And four months after her hospitalization, she was diagnosed with diabetes. And often among Mexican communities, Mexican immigrant communities, Mexican-Americans in the United States, linking grief or extraordinary stress or trauma with diabetes is not uncommon. But what's surprising about her situation and, and quite tragic, along with the trauma she experienced, was as a result of her diabetes, you know, she was working class. She'd worked 60 hours a week her entire career, and they owned a house. They were quite stable financially. But with this diabetes diagnosis, her family actually didn't have health insurance. And due to her uh, medical bills, they lost their house. So on top of this extraordinary traumatic experience um, and misdiagnosis, eventually the family lost their, their security of their house. So the consequences of misunderstanding grief or, or, or jumping too quickly to medicalize a problem that could be quite social or even ephemeral has dire consequences. And what would a perspective on that situation that acknowledged the social and contextual dimension of her mental health have led to? What would have been done differently had that been taken into account? Well, there's other ways of responding to grief. So considering the long-term consequences of an antipsychotic medication, rethinking how to care for people in moments of extraordinary trauma, um, caring for people, responding with a social intervention, maybe a religious intervention. In most of my work around the world, people first go to social or religious organizations to think about healing and feeling safe and having space to heal. So going straight to medication can cause extraordinary problems. Now, of course, medication can be crucial for people to live healthy lives, but it's not the only solution. And one of the great challenges is her, what she would call susto, her trauma, her fright, her, you know, this deep fright she felt due to the loss and grief of her son was misdiagnosed in part because the full story wasn't captured. Yeah, and obviously that full story is so important. Yeah, I think one of the challenges is clinicians come to be physicians, psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, 
healers from their own way of thinking about things. And often physicians are, you know, wealthier, maybe dissociated from a general community in which they're caring for. And, you know, with different class and racialized and gendered frames through which they see the world, there can be some dissociation or misalignment sometimes with patients. But there can also be deep cultural divisions in how people perceive suffering or experience suffering. Because mental health is linked not only to the brain, right? It's linked to our social dynamics, our communities, our families, um, the structural dynamics that you know, cause people to experience more cumulative stress compared to others linked to financial discomfort. You know, I've done work around the world, um, especially with low income people who are suffering with chronic illness. And one of the greatest stresses everywhere I asked, and I, I talked to people, what is causing you the most stress? And most of it's, it's paying rent. It's, you know, having enough money to put good food on the table and keeping, you know, kids closed and happy. Those are such great stressors extraordinary stressors. And so when I'm talking about how you view things, you know, some people could also, you know, come to see these challenges and internalize them. Someone could be extremely wealthy and compare themselves to someone else and not be happy. But where joy comes from is also framed and perceived with how you face challenges and, and how you come to think about them. And I've always found that to be really powerful. I don't say, I don't think I do well every time, every day. <laughs> I wonder, just sort of taking it one level up, could you generalize for us what would change about the way healthcare systems would approach addressing mental health if they were to apply this more contextual lens that seems to make so much sense that, that you're describing? What would be the big differences in the way they approached it? Well, I mean, tackling the healthcare system is a completely different beast because when we think about how people care for mental illness, particularly in a public hospital or, um, you know, any medicalized setting, it's really can be a challenge in part because of in anthropology, we call it the structural violence of clinical medicine. And by that, I mean that clinicians have so many patients they have to see. They have so many obligations themselves to meet certain quotas and deadlines that they're not able to fully see their patients and care for them in the deep ways in which people need caring for. I've also spoken to clinicians at Cook County, for example, who have said, you know, I'm so overburdened with patients that if I see someone has some symptom of depression, I'm going to medicate that depression symptom with Welbutrin or some antidepressant so that then they can more reliably take their diabetes medication. So treating one challenge that might have a social or, you know, even a group therapy solution with medication, because there's a time limitation and a financial limitation to truly caring for people or even structurally connecting people with an opportunity for healing is a huge constraint to enabling people are not overly medicalized when they don't need it. Now, some people need medication for depression, absolutely, and it can be a huge hurdle not accessing medication. So that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that when we medicalize problems that can have social origins and social solutions is a disservice. And that's where in psychological and medical anthropology, we're really asking when people are talking about suffering, how do we understand what that means? How do people experience it, perceive suffering? And how do they heal from it? How do people carry 
distress, emotional distress, social distress in their bodies? How do they share it among each other? How do they even think about it to begin with? And how does this play out in different ways in relation to different institutions, um, different ways of thinking, different families, different communities? Because these are real things. And when we have one-size-fits-all solutions, it really limits people's abilities to care for people with different backgrounds. This is an extraordinary um, challenge in the United States where we have you know, hundreds of cultures living within this context. So how do you go and how do you see a patient? One of the things that we've looked at in my work in South Africa, we did a study of syndemics, which is how diseases travel together, the synergies of epidemics. And, you know, we're really looking at how social dimensions affect comorbidity, so people living with two or more conditions. And what we found, that it wasn't necessarily comorbidity that affected quality of life, but it was the social stress that people carried with those comorbidities. So we saw that people could have had the same two comorbidities, but those that had lower levels of distress and less social distress in their life were likely to have better outcomes and, and perceive their life as happier and, and more stable so it's not necessarily that we need to always deal with the medical conditions. You need to care for people with medical conditions, but it's really the social and emotional aspects that enable people to live a good life that can elevate people's health and well-being. What's the direction that the healthcare profession and system is going in? Are we making progress on these structural issues that you speak to? Does your research suggest that we're moving in the right direction? No, <laughs> I think one of the biggest challenges is the lack of integration. Now, there's this great TED talk um, by a, clinic, a family doc in L.A. who says, you know, I rethought my practice and I realized that my specialization in my practice didn't need to be a cardiologist, but I needed to have a lawyer in my primary care clinic. I need to have a psychologist. I needed to have a social worker. I needed to have um, a therapist on my staff so I could care for people and meet them where they are at. Well, why would you need a lawyer in the clinic? Well, someone's cough and, 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 and chronic runny nose, he said in this great TED Talk, was, may not be allergies or it may not be asthma or it may not be a biological condition. It might be mold in your house. So how do we get to the root of the condition? How do we get to the root cause of what's causing the distress, the physical, the emotional, the social? And how can you think about interventions there? Francis Collins, the director of the, the United States National Institutes of Health for several years, stepped down last year and he said, one of my greatest regrets is not taking seriously and funded more proposals that look at the social and behavioral causes of illness. So much in biomedicine determined not only by clinical culture, but also by the ways in which we think and prioritize research about medical conditions is really thinking about social and behavioral interventions, um, as well as structural and policy interventions that may do a lot for health and well-being. So regulation of sugar-sweetened beverages available to children, right? Regulation of and enabling healthy foods for young people to learn and grow from in schools, you know? There was legislation, uh, I know when Michelle Obama was trying to promote healthier lunches for children, one of the greatest challenges is that 
the company that made pizzas for all the school lunches lobbied hard to make sure pizza was considered a vegetable because of the tomatoes on it, in part to protect their market. But what does that mean for our children and what they eat and what they have access to and what health means and how we construct a healthy community when these are the things that are being prioritized, corporate bottom lines? And, you know, it's a real challenge how we think about health and well-being um, and how we define it in America. And I think there's a lot to learn from other cultures in the ways that people construct and define mental illness and the ways in which they care for one another. And I think especially and I and this is why the mind um, the mindfulness craze has taken hold is we are all so eager to think about things a little bit different, to feel better, to find ways, natural ways to center ourselves to find joy, to define joy as central to our lives and to be happy. And I think in a culture of extractive capitalism where the bottom line is everything and we're all moving, you know, we're hustling so much and we're trying to do too much, it can be an extraordinary challenge for our mental health. It's really interesting to hear you speak about how other industries may be playing a role in getting this right or not. Um, and part of what Anna Meta was speaking to was that when you start to reframe mental health as having this large cultural, contextual and social element, she believes that you realise that there are other players who may well be able to make a difference outside of those industries classically associated with this, outside of healthcare, outside of pharmaceutical. What do you think about that idea? I think some of the most important interventions for mental health and well-being are ensuring people are not in fear every day. They, don't, they feel safe in their homes, that people feel safe financially. Um, they feel safe walking through their neighborhoods. They feel safe caring for one another. They feel safe in their school, safe from bullying, safe from gun violence. You know, the, the t intensification and insecurity, feeling safe from the police, these issues in society are extraordinary and they cause so much fear. Um, I and, and also Janet Page Reeves, another medical anthropologist at the University of New Mexico, have both found that fear plays a central role in diabetes. So we know that cumulative distress and trauma, um, you know, repeated traumas, but also chronic social distress can cause imbalance and cause heightened cortisol release in the body. And co heightened cortisol release is actually linked to insulin resistance. So there are psychophysiological processes through which fear and discomfort and anxiety and chronic distress are linked to chronic illness. So all of these things are crucial for enabling mental health and well-being. So when we think about what's causing distress in our society, it's not just any inequity in general, which can be a term that people ignore, but it's the way that people live and feel safe and that they can be their full self in society without being persecuted. So this is part of the central questions anthropology asks, is not only how you experience distress and how you feel it in the body and how it manifests in the mind and how it you know is reproduced in social relations but really what's at the heart of the matter what is driving distress in our society where does it come from these are extraordinary challenges but they're real ones many of our listeners will be from the pharmaceutical industry do you have any thoughts on the opportunities for them in reframing mental health and, and viewing care and healing with this more emotional and contextual lens that you're describing? 
Well, I think there's different ways in which pharmaceutical companies can, if I mean, if you really want to commodify health, that they are thinking about healing. And it's maybe thinking about their solutions don't always have to be medicalized. I do think that there are ways of reframing what truly caring means. For example, one of the things that we found at Cook County was that people really need other ways to connect with one another. And so, you know, better help and other uh, mental health technologies for accessing therapists, but also accessing people who are like you. That's why people have all these Facebook groups and why WhatsApp groups are really important to people and become central ways for them to express how they're feeling and how they're doing. Because sometimes, for example, if you join a diabetes group, um, you might not just talk about your chronic illness, but you might talk about other things that you share, like how to access, how to get reimbursed for medical costs or, or how to deal with the trauma that you carry with you that you maybe can't talk about with other people who maybe don't come from the same background or who don't understand your history. So really what we need is deeper and better ways to connect with one another and support each other. And while I think sometimes Facebook can do that for some ways, it can also extremely alienate and isolate people. So, you know, what are the ways we can use technology for good? Those are the next challenges and challenges that people are already trying to deal with. But also, how do we put down our phones? How do we spend time outside of medical settings to really heal and spend time with one another and listen to what we need from one another? Um, how do we make spaces in society for it to be okay, so you, for you not to be perceived as abnormal if you are hearing voices or if you have times in which you're so depressed you can't get off the floor? I think that one thing that pharmaceutical companies should really promote is assisting in helping work with workplace wellness. So enabling and maybe ensuring, you know, one of the things that I think can be really effective is when there are um, private spaces and opportunities for wellness within a workspace. So if someone's going to have to going to see their therapist and there's not one in the corporate office, they're going to have to take off work. They're going to have to go across town unless they're doing teletherapy. But creating spaces and just, you know, a lot of corporations are doing this more and more is having, you know, afternoon yoga or better food on on site or, um, you know, having mental health days. But, you know, creating spaces and opportunities for well-being. I, I really like that when you frame the solutions and challenges around mental health in this way, you realize that actually far more players and actors, both people as individuals, but also corporations potentially have a role to play in getting it right. Yeah, I think corporations can make a big difference by valuing um, people and meeting them where they where they are from the person cleaning the bathrooms to the person, you know, in the biggest office. You know, people go through different periods of, you know, relative calm or relative distress and being able to provide space, even time off. Maybe someone like Beatrice, for example, instead of hospitalization and, and losing her job and losing her house, maybe there could have she could have been met with much more empathy, right? And different opportunity to heal and recover from this extraordinary traumatic event. You know, really thinking about what can promote people's health and well-being and meeting them on their own terms um, in their own ways and recognizing that life flows, that there are some times that are good and that there are some times that are bad. And when things are bad, you need space to heal. Emily, thanks so much for joining us. That was Professor Emily Mendenhall, and thanks to you for listening to this episode of the Phenomena Podcast from Red Associates. Mm-hmm.